Our reading today is out of Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplates. Then have them made into a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Bye-bye. When I was in college, uh, I went to see the film There Will Be Blood the very night that it came out. Look, I'm culturally aware enough to know that I'm supposed to really like Daniel Day-Lewis and be absolutely taken by the visceral way that he becomes the character. But to be completely honest, the 19-year-old version of me just felt like I watched a bunch of really intense dramatic scenes that crescendoed into some really hard-to-look-at violence, and then the credits rolled, and I was sort of scratching my head. And so I can remember being on the escalator, moving back down to street level at the AMC Theater in downtown Chicago, chewing on the unpopped kernels in the bottom of my popcorn bag, listening to my friends responding the way that I knew I was supposed to be responding praising the film's brilliance and the setting and the camera angles and the performances. Oh, the performances. And for once in my life, I had the guts just to say it. What was that movie even about? Do you ever have those experiences when you hear someone else explain art to you and then suddenly you like it so much more than you just did on your own? Like someone in a gallery shows you the message behind a Monet and what you thought was a tie-dye accident is all of a sudden a masterpiece. Or a friend explains to you the the horn arrangements behind a Bonavere track and what you thought was whale noises a moment ago is modern-day Beethoven now. Or when you read a book or see a film and just kind of shrug your shoulders at it, but then a friend explains the subtext of the story and now you're recommending it to everyone you know. That's what happened to me on that escalator uh, when I saw a film back through the eyes of an interpreter and I realized, oh, it really is a masterpiece. Still don't feel the need to see it a second time, though. (laughs) And that happened to me another time recently. Has anyone seen that film, After Sun? Anyone? So so a, a friend of mine, Chad, same guy from The Escalator, ironically, Uh, He sees more movies than anyone I know. And he called me and said, I know you, Tyler, and I know you would love this. And I watched it, and I liked it. I mean, it's about a father and a daughter who are on vacation, and it's shot in this really interesting way. It's subtly beautiful. It was fine. And then I called Chad, and I said, oh, by the way, man, I saw After Sun. What's it about? (laughs) And... 
when he reinterpreted the last scene for me and how it recast every moment leading up to it in the film, I was fighting tears at his explanation. And then I started recommending this movie to anyone who would listen to me. <laughs> Sometimes the best art has to be interpreted through the eyes of someone else for me to really see it. And this part of Exodus is a whole lot like that. The tabernacle blueprints can be quite a laborious read, to put it politely. But if we can enter into the story, if we can see what Moses saw and hear what Moses heard, then you might just find that what you thought was the boring part turns out to be the climactic scene of the whole liberation journey. So we're in the very final movements of a three-month teaching series through the Bible's second book, Exodus. And if you'll recall, the theologian N.T. Wright says there are two liberation journeys in Exodus. The first is to get Israel out of slavery, and the second is to get slavery out of Israel. Uh, there's Act 1 and then there's Act 2. Both start with the defining encounter between Moses and God. Act 1 starts when Moses meets God unexpectedly through a burning bush. Act 2 starts with when Moses meets with God on the peak of Mount Sinai. And today's teaching text springs forth from the first nine verses of Exodus 25 when Moses is on Mount Sinai in the midst of that divine encounter that will lead to the second liberation journey. And though our teaching text is the first nine verses of Exodus 25, what I'm actually going to cover is Exodus 25 through the end of the whole book. And that's because these nine verses we just read, that's when God gives instructions to Moses on what to do. But Moses puts those instructions into practice, and that's essentially the remainder of the Exodus story. And so I'm going to take approximately 10 chapters that we haven't touched because they're on a single theme, the tabernacle, where God will teach his people how to live in the freedom that he rescued them for. So for those who prefer a map, here's the stops we're going to make along the way. The blueprint, the building, the person, the people, and the promise. So first, the blueprint. Read along with me in your Bibles. I'm gonna start right back where Pete just read for us, Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. So in the defining encounter where God himself will instruct an enslaved people on how to live in their freedom, not just an outward freedom, but a full inner freedom that he really brought them out of Egypt for, God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give a really compelling pitch about a church building project and ask anyone who has it in their heart to give to donate to this project. Yahweh himself launches the first capital campaign in church history and we've never stopped following suit, have we? I imagine Moses likely recorded a pretty dramatic video of himself walking through just the bare bones of the space and then gazing out at a crescendo of the city skyline as Cigaros played behind him. Surely their website had one of those thermometers toward the goal, you know the thing that I'm talking about? They probably undershot their estimate the first time, then had to come back, ask for more money from the people they'd already donated to it. It's too soon? <laughs> Feels like it might be too soon. Thank you to all who gave to the acquisition and construction of the building that we're currently meeting in, though a meeting on Mount Sinai did not begin this whole journey. It has been quite wonderful, hasn't it? 
After that, God gets specific about the sort of fundraising he has in mind. This is a pre-monetized world. You've got to remember, this is not a wealth economy. It's a trade economy. And so these offerings that the people should bring include gold and onyx. Now, if you've been around for the whole of this teaching series, that should sound familiar. These resources harken back to Eden. They're the very metals in the description of Eden's soil, the resources that God blesses and commissions his people to cultivate from a garden into a garden city where a society will grow that is living in perfect love and perfect love only. Do you remember when we talked about the priest's clothing and how their vest was to contain onyx with the names of the 12 tribes? The onyx is referenced in the Hebrew Bible only in Genesis 1, talking about the creation of Eden, and never again until Exodus 25, the teaching text that we read today. For the ancient Israelite, this would be glaringly obvious that God is giving Moses instructions for recreation, for the reestablishment of God's Edenic blessing to co-create alongside him as his image bearers, for a restored heaven on earth spot that will expand and expand until heaven and earth are completely one. That's what these 10 chapters of step-by-step Ikea-style instructions about how to put the tabernacle together are all about. They're about recreation. This is a recommissioning of the Genesis blessing. Rule and reign, create, cultivate the raw materials of this garden into a garden city that will be governed by perfect love and union. Sounds fantastic, but how does it work? Well, remember this, the author of Exodus is writing in this really sophisticated literary design uh, to direct the reader's attention to the very center. It's kind of like a target where there's instructions for the tabernacle architecture and instructions for the priest's clothing and ceremonies that go on inside that tabernacle, like festivals and forms of worship and Sabbath rest and sacrifice. And it can all make you shrug your shoulders, but with a little help, I think what seemed to be the sleepy part is actually thrilling. A few weeks ago, we covered the very center, the priest within the tabernacle, but today we wanna move to the outer layers, the tabernacle instructions for what goes on in it. And every detail of what goes on within this tabernacle is about recreation. It's a picture of Eden casting the priest as a new Adam who re-enters paradise on behalf of the people so that heaven can wash backward onto earth. So let's pick up now in Exodus 25, verse eight. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There's an interesting wordplay happening in these verses. The English words tabernacle and dwell are actually the same word in Hebrew, just one in noun form and the other in verb form. Tabernacle is the noun mishkan, dwell is the verb shakan. Same word used in a different form. And it is from this word that we get the term shekinah, or as you may have heard it, shekinah. God's shekinah glory is a theme within both Israelite uh, rabbinic and mystical literature uh, for the experienced presence of God. I like Eugene Peterson's definition. Shekinah refers to an awareness of God to a time and place where God is not expected to be. So Shekinah is a word for God's manifest presence. 
A.W. Tozer in his classic, uh, The Pursuit of God, describes God's omnipresence and God's manifest presence, essentially concluding that God's omnipresence is just a fact. You can accept it or deny it, but his manifest presence is less a fact and more an experience that we open and close ourselves off to. So God's omnipresent, he is everywhere all the time. So it is a false dichotomy to talk about coming into God's presence if it's God's omnipresence that we're talking about. But God's manifest presence typically has more to do with my awareness of God's nearness than his actual coming and going. Shekinah is that, my awareness of God is awakened. And we know that experience spiritually when a communal place of worship like the one that we're in right now comes to represent a thin space that I show up to with a heightened awareness of God's presence and a heightened expectation that God might meet me here, might speak to me here. Or a place of personal prayer, like a memorable hour of prayer you had on an oceanside walk, or that one hike when you began to sing and even weep on the trail because you felt so near to God, or just the hour that you spent in the prayer room that's beneath my feet right now. Some location becomes holy ground for you because it's a place that you had the experience of God's manifest presence Usually not that God came closer to you there, but that you became aware of the God who has come closer even than your breath in that place. But the reason I think Peterson's definition is so helpful is because of the words not expected. Shekinah refers to an awareness of God to a time and place where God is not expected to be. You know, like a burning bush on an otherwise ordinary day at work for Moses. Interestingly, in the biblical story, the Shekinah of Yahweh, the place where I know God's presence most deeply, it's almost always the place that I wasn't expecting to find God, and in fact, the place I never willingly would have gone to on my own, given the choice. It's the wilderness that Moses fled to, hiding from his past and his shame. It's the wilderness that the Israelites wander in for 40 years in Exodus. It's the wilderness of Engedi where David ran as a fugitive and wrote much of the Psalms. It's the Babylonian exiles who are finally released only to return to a Jerusalem. They don't recognize it as their hometown because the whole place has been destroyed and ransacked. It's an upper room where Jesus' disciples are hiding out thinking if they crucified him, then I'm definitely next, right? They've seen me with him. That is, until Jesus shows up and makes that fearful place a Shekinah place. The hard places, the twists and turns in our story that we'd edit away if we had the choice, they become the places of encounter. Often the holiest parts of our stories, the bit where God met us profoundly, exactly where I did not expect him to be. That's worth hanging on to as we keep going. So you got the blueprint, then comes the building. The tabernacle was the world's first icon. So this is an old painting, uh, an ancient icon called Christ Pantocrator. And uh, what makes this an icon and not just a painting is the intent of the artist. Historically, icons were not made to be looked at so much as looked through. They point to something beyond themselves. So just gaze closely at this particular painting and you'll notice something. Jesus' face looks strange. 
Like the left side is very soft and welcoming and gentle, but the right side is piercing and stern with pursed lips and a raised eyebrow clutching a copy of the scriptures. The contrast is even more obvious if you look at this second image where another artist took the two halves and made them whole so that you could see the contrast. So what's the deal with this painting? Is this poor design? Is this an amateur artist? No. It's that this painting is not meant to be looked at but looked through. It's not meant to be a literal depiction of Jesus' face. It was painted more like a window to gaze through to see something about Jesus I wouldn't see just by looking at his face. Jesus who holds perfect love and perfect justice together in one person, depicted in this image. An icon is that. It's an image that's not meant to be gazed at for its beauty but gazed through to see a deeper beauty. And that's what the tabernacle is. It's the world's first icon. You see it when you look through it. Let me show you. Uh, Go back with me now, Exodus 25, again picking up in verse eight. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Now this English word among is the Hebrew phrase in the middle and it is the identical phrase that we read in the Genesis creation account for the location of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the tabernacle is just a model of Eden. That's the blueprint Moses is getting, a blueprint of the Garden of Eden. At the center of the Garden of Eden in Genesis is the tree of life. At the center of the tabernacle in Exodus is the holy of holies, meaning the innermost room where where God will dwell in his constant manifest presence. Move out a layer from there and you get to the gate of the tabernacle, which includes engravings of angels holding flaming swords. What's that about? Well, at the end of Genesis 3, after the heartbreak of the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, tragically expelling them from Eden, we read, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This entrance back to the full, free kind of life, life at its its fullest, life apart from death, what the New Testament will go on to call eternal life, that entrance is guarded. This is just a very brief cursory overview of a ton of biblical symbolism that I'm offering you, but you do see what God's doing here with Moses, right? I mean, when he told Moses, build the tabernacle exactly after the pattern I will show you, and then starts unfolding the pattern, the pattern is Eden. God is recreating. He's drawing and sculpting and directing all at the same time. Art that will reveal his plan for defeating the curse. His plan for bringing heaven to earth. Check this out. The the tabernacle is designed in three layers, all leading to God's presence. So you've got the courtyard where only the people can go, and then you've got the holy place where only the priests can go, and then you've got the holy of holies where only the high priest can go and only once a year, and that's where God's presence is most concentrated. Moses is receiving this blueprint standing on a mountain, a mountain designed in three layers, all leading closer to God's presence. God says, all right, Moses, I want you to have the people stay at the base of the mountain, and then Aaron can come on up with you, but only halfway. He needs to stop and camp out midway of the hike. Only you can come all the way into my presence. And we're reading all of this in a block of Exodus designed in three layers. Layers, all leading closer to God's presence. Build the tabernacle exactly after the pattern I will show you. Guys, are you seeing this? 
It, it's a, I said this before, we're reading a Rubik's Cube. This is such a sophisticated, intentionally designed piece of literature we're working with. Now, once you've got it built, the priest should then perform a ceremony there. Now, disclaimer, as we move into the ceremonies, there's a number of different uh, ceremonies with various rituals and sacred practice. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm gonna speak of just one ceremony, but you should know that there's much more than one. I just don't want us to bite off more than we can chew in one day. So the ceremonies, they, they go like this. Sacrifice an animal, but not the worst of your flock that you're okay parting with. A perfect, spotless sacrifice. And then right there at the altar in front of the entrance, the entrance guarded by the angels with flaming swords, shed the blood. Now we might assume that the shed of blood indicates death, but it's actually symbolic of life, the eternal kind of life that we don't know how to get back to. And then by sacrifice, this animal goes up and in, up in smoke because the whole sacrifice must be burned up, nothing left on the altar, and the smoke rises up symbolically into the heavens. And then in, because by sacrifice, it passes by the sword, back in to life. The perfect spotless sacrifice ascends into heaven and opens the door of life. You tracking? Next, a person, the priest, an intercessor, and not just any person, but a person wearing gold and onyx, a person glowing with the life of Eden, enters on our behalf into paradise. And the sacrifice had to be spotless because only someone uncorrupted by the curse of sin could sacrificially reopen the door to life, to the full, unending kind of life, to eternal life. Now look with me at the tabernacle, but don't just look at it, look through it, like an icon. The people walked out of Eden going what direction? East, exactly. East is biblical imagery for walking away from God. It's a directional picture of, of getting distant from God. West, in turn, is a directional picture in Scripture for drawing near to God. And the tabernacle is positioned very intentionally. It is west of the people facing east. This is the way back into Eden. Like put yourself right there in the shoes of the common Israelite standing at the altar, and what do you see? If you're standing at the altar for the ceremony of sacrifice, you're looking at the tabernacle gate. You're looking through the angels, guarding the entrance with the sword of fire to where God dwells. The, the whole pattern is to give you a glimpse of what you were to see if you were to journey back and walk right up to the gates of Eden. And what you would see is, I can't get past this fire unless there's a blameless representative who will go in on my behalf. And that blameless representative is then depicted in two symbols, a sacrifice whose life is given that I might have life, and a person, a glowing person, who can by sacrifice walk past the guarded gate, back into life, eternal life, and even more so, open up that gate so that that eternal kind of life flows back into this corrupted place and into my corrupted life even now. All of that made possible by who? By a perfect, spotless, sacrificial, intercessor. Don't you see it? The icon. I mean, if you want to see the tabernacle, don't get caught up looking at it. Look right through it. The tabernacle is the world's first icon, but it's also more than an icon because the tabernacle is both an image and a reality. 
You see, the analogy I've been giving you breaks down at some point because that painting of Jesus' face I showed you, that's an iconic image. But it's just an image. The tabernacle, though, is both an iconic image and a reality filled with the real living presence of God. So let's try another analogy. Our friends over at the Bible Project, they compare Israel's tabernacle to Oregon's Bonneville Dam. Up by Multnomah Falls, just an hour's drive or so from here, uh, from where we're sitting right now, is the primary dam on the Columbia River. And it generates an extraordinary amount of power, the source of electricity for the city of Portland. You can go to that museum and check out the visitor center. You can watch the salmon run at the right time of year. You can try to spot the 100-year-old sturgeon making its way through the water. It's really fun. But it's also the primary source of power that supports our lives. So whether you visit or not, you're living in the reality of the Bonneville Dam all the time. In this very moment, the Bonneville Dam is turning on the lights, pumping some AC, not quite enough if you ask me, <laughs> pumping some AC, projecting the slides and amplifying my voice. And if you live in southeast Portland like I happen to, you may or may not know that there's a substation at Belmont, and I believe it's 33rd, and if you go there, you will hear it humming, generating power. Now that substation, it's both an image and a reality. It's an image because it's not the real thing. It is not the Bonneville Dam. But it's also a reality because it is alive with the actual power of the Bonneville Dam and it is delivering the reality of the Bonneville Dam to my home every moment of every day. And that is the tabernacle. It's an image because it's not the real thing, not the whole thing. It's not heaven on earth. But it's also a reality because God really does at this stage in the story dwell there with his divine presence. It really is charged with the power of heaven touching earth, and it really is telling and revealing the story of how God is going to get the overlap of heaven and earth completely one again in the end. And that takes us from a blueprint and a building to the person. You see, this whole tabernacle project, it was never about a building. It was always about a person. It was an icon to look through to see Jesus, to recognize God disguised in human flesh. Every last piece of this is about Jesus. Jesus is the image and the reality. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the high priest and he is the tabernacle. Jesus is the sacrifice. At the very beginning of the story, before Jesus had worked a single miracle or uttered a word of teaching, John the Baptist caught a glimpse of him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then after watching all that would unfold in the years to come, the perfect, spotless life sacrificially laid on the altar, Jesus insisted that his death was not the heinous act of a barbaric injustice, but, but it wasn't the murder of an innocent man, it was a willing sacrifice. He kept saying things like, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. My life is given as a ransom for many. And after the sacrifice, Jesus, just like the Exodus sacrifice, went up and in. He went up to sit at the right hand of the Father, but he went into paradise beyond the flaming sword to reopen the gates of heaven that they might wash backward onto earth, backward to you and me, until heaven and earth are completely one. And after watching all of that up close and personal, Peter echoed in the end what John said at the beginning. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is the sacrifice, Jesus is the priest. We covered this a few weeks ago when Caiaphas tore his robes in front of the real high priest, the one who's more than an image, wearing a robe, performing a symbolic ceremony, but is the reality, the true intercessor who is fully God and fully man, fully with us, one of us, taking on our weakness, and fully divine, other, a stranger in this world because he does not belong to this world. And after watching all of that up close and personal, the author of Hebrews concludes, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the sacrifice, Jesus is the priest, and Jesus is the tabernacle. He made the claim, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Jesus said that while standing on the Temple Mount, one of the architectural wonders of the world. They'd been working on it for two generations. The priests are offended because they think he's talking about the building. But the temple he had spoken of, says John, was his body. The tabernacle, and the temple is just another word for the same thing. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelled. It was the Shekinah place. God guided Israel through the wilderness by a a cloud. God met with Moses on Mount Sinai by a cloud. And when they had finished the construction of the tabernacle, God filled it as a cloud. After his death and resurrection, when the disciples are hiding out in fear in that upper room, sure they're next in line, Jesus turns an upper room, a place they'd never have gone to on their own, a twist in their story that they did not see coming, a moment that they would edit out and change altogether if they could. Jesus shows up in that place in their stories and turns a fearful place into a Shekinah place, filling it with the cloud of his presence just as he filled the tabernacle. And when he showed up in that place, he said, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is unmistakable tabernacle imagery. Jesus is acting like he is the tabernacle because that's exactly who he is. Much more than just an image, like a building designed after Eden, he is the real thing. The tabernacle is the world's first icon. We look through it to see Jesus, but it's so much more than only an icon. It's also the reality because Jesus has really made a way for God to dwell with us and within us. And the person is only indicative of the people. Those who receive Jesus as all of that then become all of that. First Peter 2, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you come to Jesus, you become the tabernacle, the priest, and the sacrifice. We are the sacrifice. Uh, Life as we currently know it has to go through a kind of death in order to enter into the real, true, fullest kind of living. But those who do lay down their lives on his altar find themselves going up and in, up to sit down to rest at the presence of the Father and into the fullest, freest kind of life and life without death, the kind of life you'd actually want to live forever because you're finally made whole, eternal life. And we are the priests. 
A priest is an intercessor who passes into Eden not to escape the corruption of this place and live forever in paradise, but so that paradise might wash backward onto earth. An intercessor intercessor is a bridge between heaven and earth, and that is who you are, my friends. The place that heaven touches earth is in you. We come alive by laying down our lives, and then we go on to live the fullest kind of life by offering our bodies as living sacrifices. The 12 Steps of of Alcoholics Anonymous, which are based on the Bible, include the imperative of service offering my life and sacrificial love for the sake of others. Why? Like, why would an alcoholic need to serve others to stop drinking? What does one of those have to do with the other? Because when I've lost myself to a destructive appetite and I've run the pleasure principle to its logical conclusion so that the returns have become so diminishing that my soul is owned by a singular self-centered craving, how do I get free? Well, among other things, I turn my life outward that I might reacquire a taste for true life. And somehow, in a way that seems backward to our logic, but so true to our experience, a way that Jesus was direct and straightforward about, I come more alive by selflessly and sacrificially loving others than I do by indulging myself. I find my life by giving it away. The fullest kind of life is to live like an intercessor, We die to ourselves to come alive and then we go on tasting the truest kind of life by dying daily to ourselves for the sake of others. We are the the sacrifice, we are the priest and we are the tabernacle. Jesus acting like a tabernacle breathes on his disciples, on us and says what? Receive the Holy Spirit. The very Shekinah presence that inhabits the tabernacle has come to tabernacle in Jesus and now tabernacles permanently in each and every one of his followers. All who follow him as Lord are now filled with his very presence, with his Holy Spirit. Now I'm not the whole thing, but I am the image and the reality. I am a little Bonneville Dam. I am the substation at Belmont and 33rd. We are filled with the Holy Spirit to become both pictures of the real thing and to be the real thing itself, generating power and life to the world around us. Jesus has not merely forgiven our wrongs and given us a get out of jail free card so that we could know his paradise regardless of the mess that we make. He has done that, but he's done so much more than that. He's given you and I a consequential role in the redemption of the whole world. And this is ultimately all pointing past the person, past the people, and to the promise. The Bible's last page describes the finished work when heaven and earth are finally entirely one again. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, on the last page, no longer is their image. The image has been done away with. There is reality, and there is only reality, and there is always reality. And that is all that Yahweh had in mind when he said on that mountain, all right, Moses, I want you to build this exactly like the pattern that I'm gonna show you. such a stirring theme. God's determination to dwell with us, 
to come increasingly close until we're filled with his very life by his spirit. It's such a sure promise. The Holy Spirit given to us now is a sure deposit of what we can expect to know fully and entirely and always. It's poetry. I have this personal practice of reading a poem every night, laying in my bed, last thing before I fall asleep. And lately I've been working my way through the whole catalog of Mary Oliver's work. And I do it because poetry, like nothing else, opens my eyes to see and opens my heart to feel. Because a poet's someone that can watch a fish jump in a pond and, and then just see a world of meaning in the ripples that go out from the splash that it makes. Or sees all the world's suffering in the face of a single hungry child. Or all of the world's joy and the resilient smile on that same child's face. A poet is someone who savors life and then serves it up to you and I like a dish at a fine dining restaurant, right? Not much, just a little bit on a big plate. But this, it's not meant to be devoured. It's meant to be savored and chewed on slowly, tasting the complexity of every note, gathering an appreciation of the substance of this thing. I love to read just a single poem at night before I doze off because it helps me end the day in gratitude. It helps me to savor the gift of life through the eyes of the poet. And that practice, it's led me to this one conclusion, that a poet is just someone who sees through what most of us tend just to look at. To read a poem is just to look at ordinary life iconically. It is to look through the autumn leaves, look through the laughing child, look through uh, the weathered hand of the elderly woman, look through the outstretched hand of the hungry beggar, look through the, the wrinkled and weathered face of the tired man, look through it all to see the magic written into all of it, to see the image of the invisible God that fills all of it with magic. To read a poem is to see for a moment through the eyes of a poet. But you know, the trouble with poetry is that tomorrow is a Monday morning. And the trouble with being dazzled by the magic of a poem every night is the last thought before I drift off is that I wake up the following morning and I see the whole world through my eyes, not the eyes of the poet. I lose the magic of the poem and the haze of the morning's activities and the commute into work and the to-do list and the interruptions and annoyances and cravings. The trouble with all this biblical poetry is that tomorrow's Monday morning and you've got a work day waiting with a full inbox or a to-do list a mile long or resumes to send out or kids to come up with activities for on the last day of summer. The busyness and the noise and the monotony and the boredom of everyday life is more consistent than the poetry is. It's more consuming and it's more all-encompassing. To live in God's reality, we need more than just poetry. We need practice. We need a way to inhabit the poem. We need to live in it the way that the Israelites did through the ceremony and the tabernacle. We need to move ourselves with this promise as or more often as we rehearse the busy, noisy, monotonous, anxious demands of the everyday. So how do I inhabit God's poetry? How does all this get converted from poetry into practice, from comforting reflection for a moment on a Sunday to life and life to the full on a Monday? Well, I think the answer to that comes through 
the place that the gift is given. The tabernacle was a gift for the wilderness. When most people hear the word tabernacle, they picture a temple. And eventually it did become that. But tabernacle literally just means tent. When God came to dwell among his people, he did not move into a house. He pitched a tent. It was a really nice tent, though. It was like a camper van. Here's the point. Everywhere Israel went, when they were lost and wandering for 40 years, there with them was this living picture of the entrance back to Eden, a way to know and come before God, a way that paradise touches earth, even right here, even today, even in the wilderness. The tabernacle was a gift for the wilderness. And wilderness is a major biblical theme. It comes up again and again, but there are these three major stories. There's Israel's 40 years of wandering between Sinai and the Promised Land, and then there's David's seven years in En Gedi, living as a fugitive, and then there's Jesus' 40 days of testing. Scripture depicts the wilderness as both an image and a reality, a lot like the tabernacle. While the wilderness is a reality for Israel and David and Jesus, wilderness is also borrowed throughout the Scripture as a motif for life's wandering, life's hardship, life's outright desperation, and life's dry spells. The wilderness is the long stretches of your life when you suddenly realize how much control you don't have when you are without direction and without purpose. In the wilderness, we lose our sense of self, our certainty of identity, and our clarity of vision. In the wilderness, the name of the game is survival. It is make it through this day, this week, this month, this year, this decade. Just make it through in one piece. Stay alive. That's it. That's all that matters. I mean, sure, Israel really did wander for 40 years, and David really did live off the land for seven, and Jesus really retreated into the desert for 40 days. So the wilderness was a reality, but no one just wanders off into the wilderness. We all know by human experience that the wilderness comes and finds you. It's an image for a real experience that we all know too well. And what I notice when I look at these three biblical wilderness accounts, what they all hold in common is this, that no one chooses the wilderness. It is a place and a time, a moment, a set of circumstances in your life or a state that you're in that you must be driven into by some other force. Israel driven into the wilderness by Egypt. David driven into the wilderness by Saul. Jesus driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. And David in the wilderness is unique among these different wilderness stories because his story is told both objectively and subjectively. Like Samuel tells the story objectively in his writings, narrating all that happened to David in the wilderness, but we can read the Psalms and enter into the subjective experience David had in the wilderness where so many of those prayers that we still recite were written. David's wilderness years read from that inside view of the Psalms, they reveal something striking. That in the wilderness, David repurposed the biblical word refuge. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, up to this point, refuge has been a physical geographical word. A refuge is a literal safe place to run to in danger. 
But then in the Psalms, refuge gets stripped of physicality and geography and it takes on personality. David starts calling Yahweh refuge. For instance, Psalm 57, which is a prayer of David written from a cave in the wilderness as he's being hunted down by Saul, begins, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. 37 times in the Psalms, the word refuge is used almost always in this entirely new biblical way. God, he is my refuge. You see, before this, David's life was on a trajectory. He was gaining popularity, building a reputation, a career. It was up and to the right, and you better believe that David thought he was seamlessly working into a plot that would continue on in the same direction, and then the wilderness came looking for him. Driven to a place he would never have willingly gone on his own, forced to remain there for an unbearable amount of time, countless long, slow, subtly agonizing days, and there in the wilderness he'd never chosen David discovered something that he would never trade for the up and to the right story he thought he was living, that refuge is not a place that I feel safe or a set of circumstances that I've finally got set in the right order. Refuge is a person, and his name is Yahweh. God's Shekinah, his manifest presence, my awareness of his nearness, it still tends to light up the unexpected places, the hard places, the places of discomfort, the circumstances and relationships that I never would have chosen, the wilderness that I never would have walked into on my own. But no one gets to come alive without going through the wilderness. And no one gets to stay alive, really alive, without finding ourselves there a few times. The tabernacle means, because of Jesus, Eden is found, even in the wilderness. Where is a wilderness in your life? Is there some moment, some circumstance, some relationship, some pain that you'd never have walked into willingly, but you have been driven there? Jesus invites you to know him and to go with him into God's unexpected Shekinah presence, into paradise, into encounter, into life, into refuge, even in the wilderness. The wilderness on its own, though, it guarantees you nothing. I mean, David was driven into the wilderness by Saul. Saul was pulled into the wilderness, hunting down David. Saul unraveled in the very same wilderness where David came alive. So what makes the difference? In a word, prayer. Prayer is the practice that pulls the tabernacle from Sunday's poetry into Monday's reality. David prayed his way through the desperation, the restlessness, the pain, the monotony of the wilderness until the wilderness lit up with God's presence. Read the Psalms. They're peppered with wilderness imagery. Somewhere along the way, everywhere David looked, in this place he never would have gone to, this turn in his story that he would change if he could, everywhere he looked in that wilderness place, it was lit up with the presence of God. Everywhere he looked in the wilderness, he saw refuge. And this is what makes a practice like a daily prayer rhythm so helpful. Some rhythm that 
trains me to turn my attention to God and turn my attention to God and turn my attention to God, to shift my gaze, to open my eyes, to broaden my vision, that kind of rhythm, that's the practice of tabernacle. It's an invitation for God to transform the wild into refuge. Look, I don't want to overpromise here. Prayer is not transactional and it is far from predictable. It does not deliver a calculable return on the investment that you put in. But for those who are willing to practice prayer resiliently over time, it does introduce you to refuge, to the person David named refuge. For Saul, the wilderness was all about keeping what he had, getting back to what he knew, what made him feel secure before. For Saul, the wilderness was a place of ego protection. For David, the wilderness was all about tabernacle. Not just poetry, but practiced tabernacle. And so it became a place of soul expansion. You do not get to choose whether or when you will be driven into the wilderness. But you do get to choose how you live while you're there. And so the Exodus tabernacle, friends, it shows us at least two things. The first is that your life does not rest on your desire to dwell with God, but his relentless commitment to dwell with you. Jesus is all of this, and he is returning to give you the eternal kind of life. All of that is freely based on his grace and his grace alone. But two, that your spiritual experience this side of that eternity your spiritual experience will be profoundly determined by how you respond to the wilderness that you would never choose, but will be driven into. The wilderness, like nothing and nowhere else, avails you the opportunity to know God's fierce commitment to dwell with you. If, if you will let him become your refuge.